Hey, good morning. My name is Brad, and uh, we're going to be looking at the book of Nahum today. And if you can't just pull that up from memory, what that book is about or where it's located in your Bible, uh, you're in like very common hands in this room, I'm sure. But uh, Nahum, uh, we'll read it in just a minute, uh, verse chapter 1, verse 1. And uh, Nahum is one of the minor prophets. That's what we're going through this fall as a church. So we're looking at uh, all of these uh, guys who spoke uh, to their people and sometimes spoke against uh, other nations around them in times of great turmoil. Uh, these were also guys that, uh, for the most part, went unlistened to. Uh, they also uh, were standing for things like justice, for mercy, for compassion. Uh, but ultimately, they were, they were standing up for God to be known for who he is. So prophets are always uh, basically repeating the same sort of stuff, which is, uh, do you guys remember who God is? Do you remember what he said he was like? Do you remember who we are because he's that way and because he's rescued us and saved us? Do you remember what kind of people we're supposed to be? And uh, that's why it's so good for us to read it, because it's the same sort of message that we need all the time, is to be reminded of who God is, what he's like, um, and what it means for us and how we should live. And so I'm just going to start reading uh, Nahum, uh, verse 1. He says, an article concerning Nineveh. Uh, Yeah, that's the same city that Jonah was supposed to go to and then ultimately did go to. And this comes after the the book of Jonah happened. But it says, An article concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in a whirlwind and a storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like a fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces before him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him, but with an overflowing flood, he will make complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness." Who do you plot against? The, what do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time, for they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. And then thus says the Lord. This is God talking now. Though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I break his yoke from off of you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image I will make your grave, for you are vile. 
happiness verse, right? The first lines, he says, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he keeps wrath for his enemies. What Nahum has to say is, remember who God is. He's vengeful and wrathful. Uh, In a few weeks, we're going to do Thanksgiving. I think most of us celebrate Thanksgiving here. There aren't too many people opposed to that. Uh, Gathering, there are some actually, now that I think of it, remembering. Anyway, uh, many of us will probably do Thanksgiving. And we'll sit around the table and... If you're with your family, there will be some awkward story or some horrific story from your family's life that no one should dare bring up. Like Thanksgiving, there's rules about it. No one's supposed to bring up what happened long ago in our hometown or, or that business deal that went bad for grandpa. Like we don't talk about those things, right? Uh, we also know that there are probably topics that there aren't really harsh in the family history, but there are topics that we dare not speak about, like who did you vote for, or uh, you know what does your church believe about this tiny nuanced thing, or perhaps you know your family is just one of those that that when you get together at Thanksgiving you just sort of remember and talk about all the pleasantries about each other's lives. When someone stands up and gives a toast, they say, you know, we're the greatest family there ever was. You know, just kind of like the Dodgers as they were losing the World Series. No offense to anyone who cares. But uh, the, the players kept saying through that whole series, we have the greatest fans in the world. Does anyone believe that? No. Like, they're, like, obviously better fans in the world than any sort of, like, you know, I don't know, famous person who shows up only for the, like, Game 7 of the World Series. <laughs> but that's the, that's the play, right, at Thanksgiving. Like, let's, like, we'll stand up and we'll say all the good things that we're comfortable with, but there are things that we're not comfortable discussing and allowing in. Uh, I have a friend in Portland. He wrote a book called uh, The Skeletons in God's Closets. It's really great. You can read that instead of the sermon. But in that book, he talks about how Christians are raised to believe there are certain things that are too dark and too scary and too unpleasant for us to discuss. Like verse 2, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. I think most of us uh, would rather not talk, think, uh, discuss that God is saying here in the Bible that he is a jealous and angry God. It reminds us of, you know, like high school literature of the great, you know, famous sermon that we always have to read about Jonathan Edwards that says that, that we're all sinners in the hands of an angry God. And, and if you Google preacher, uh, which you should do sometime, just images for preacher, what you find is just a whole bunch of finger pointing, right? And we like to walk through, you know, downtown squares and there's a guy who's on a box who's, you know, preaching hellfire and brimstone. And we want to say, that's not what we believe. My God is nice, right? But here in this verse and the verses I read afterwards, which are pretty like play out it pretty, you know, viscerally, God is actually jealous and avenging. 
So the question we have is, is that really true? Is God really just sort of trying to muster all the strength that he created the universe with? Is he just trying to use that to restrain himself from just squashing us like bugs? Is that, is that God's thing? And if so, like how do I proclaim this good truth in Trader Joe's or anywhere else that he's like that? Or how do I sing songs like we just did? If, if beneath it all, he's really just angry and vengeful. A lot of us, there are a few ways that we get around this. And I'm going to go through them pretty fast. Uh, like I said, you can read Josh Butler's book instead. He doesn't talk about this stuff. This is my own stuff. Anyway, this is from seminary. Uh, he, one of the first things that we try to do is we say, well, maybe this is the Old Testament God. But the New Testament God is really nice. So the Old Testament God, he's really angry, he's frustrated, he, you know, and all of this anger and vengeance and wrath, that's all just because these people didn't follow the rules. But Jesus doesn't care about the rules. Like, Jesus is kind. He, he has meals with prostitutes and tax collectors. He's the one that stands up and says we should love our enemies, love our friends, love our neighbors, love one another. Jesus is nice and kind, but the Old Testament God is harsh and bitter. And, and what we might suppose is this is just some you know, bygone era where uh, God had to sort of show his muscle, so to speak just to get people a little nervous, like a little scared that that he could squash people like bugs. But then Jesus, the Son of God, convinces his dad, hey, don't wipe them out. I'm going to go and I'm going to care for them. Here's the problem with that. Do you guys want to know the problem with that? No one talks more about hell in the entire Bible than Jesus. The expert on hell in the Bible is Jesus. Paul doesn't talk about hell, hardly at all. Uh, Peter doesn't talk about hell. Uh, John does, but it's in this mystical, crazy book of Revelation. Jesus is the expert, actually, on hell. These are just some of the things that he says, and not all of them. Uh, In Matthew 5, he says uh, that anyone who's a fool will be in danger of being thrown into hell or Gehenna. Uh, Gehenna is used a lot. Uh, Gehenna was initially this place that the kings of Israel actually threw their children into uh, as a worship to other gods. It's a place where they actually sacrificed their children, threw them into this pit. Uh, In later times, after Jerusalem was destroyed and the times of Jesus, it came to just sort of signify and bring about the reaction that this is a horrible, awful place. It's actually a dumping ground of trash and other idols that they would bring out and that they would throw into this pit, and it was burning and heaping, and their wild dogs, and it was like this awful place. But by the time of Jesus' life, that just sort of was shorthand for hell. Some sort of eternal damnation and judgment. And so Jesus says, if you're a fool, you're in danger of being thrown in there. In Matthew 23, uh, he says that, that at the very end of a parable, he shifts and he says, and this is what it's going to be like, people will be thrown outside where there's great weeping and gnashing of teeth. So like a situation so bad that people are just weeping that they're in it 
and, and filled with so much anxiety, their teeth are getting whittled away. Matthew 10, he says, Be afraid of the one who can destroy both the body and the soul in hell. And Luke chapter 10, he calls all the cities of Galilee like his home turf, like his people, his land. He calls all those cities out and he says the judgment coming to them will be more bearable than these other pagan cities. That, that it would be better to be in some of these other places than, than, than to be where they are because it will be so bad. In Matthew 18, he says this, he says, but if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the seas. Later in that chapter, he says, Woe to the world for the causes of sin. These stumbling blocks must come, but woe to the man whom they who made them come. Those are just a snapshot of Jesus' phrases on this. Uh, it's pretty intense. And you might say, okay, I guess the Old Testament God and the New Testament God might actually be the same God. As, as horrific as that might sound in this moment, that's true. And you should also know, by the way, that when Jesus says we should love one another as ourselves, and when he says we should love God with everything that we have, he's not making something up on the fly, but he's actually quoting the Old Testament, which says we're supposed to love God with everything we have and love our enemies and love our neighbors. The Old Testament actually says we're supposed to love the, the aliens, the strangers, the orphans, the widows of our place. So Jesus isn't coming up with some wholesale changes of, yeah, the Old Testament was vicious and hard, but the, the New Testament is going to be really fun because it's in Greek. Uh, he's actually portraying the same heart of God in both. So another thing people might say is, well, maybe this is just hyperbole. Like Nahum's like, got to like, you know, get people up for this. And, and so maybe it's all just metaphor. Like this is just eloquent phrasing of, of something that happens on the inside. So as he describes the destruction and the, the destroying of a person's life, what, maybe what Nahum is really saying is, uh, this is uh, just something that might happen on the soul, that your heart might dry away, that, that, the, that the, the walls that you build up will be broken down. I'll read some of it for you. Uh, this is chapter 2, verse 8. He says, Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but no one turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or the wealth of all precious things. Desolation, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den? The feeding place of the young lions. The lion and the lioness went where their cubs were with none to disturb. The lions tore enough of, for his cubs and strangled prey for his lioness. And he filled his caves with prey and all the, his den with torn flesh. In verse 13, it says, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots in smoke. The sword shall devour 
your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. The, uh, the thing about these verses, which I think you could try to make a case of, this is metaphor. Um, yeah, when we walk away from God, it's like being desolated. It's like being ruined. Except, uh, this stuff really happened. So in 612 BC, Babylon completely wiped out Assyria. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. And there was a three-month siege, which ended with a complete defeat of the people. The, the king of Nineveh committed suicide. In fact, you can even read about how the Babylonians took their chariots and burned them. You can read about it, uh, and there's a really complicated name for it, but you can essentially read about it in the Chronicle of Nineveh, which outlines the final years of this empire and the, the treaties they tried to make to save themselves and the way that things slowly rumbled apart. Their chariots were destroyed. Their lion's dens were taken away and killed. This really happened. Like Nahum stood up, predicted this would happen, and then it really happened. It's not a metaphor. Like this is a real thing. God does wipe out civilizations. In fact, this book is in part written as a testimony to the fact that God purposefully plans way beforehand that no civilization, Nineveh at this time, was the superpower No civilization, no matter how strong or big their armies are, are outside of the wrath of God. Outside of his control. Nahum predicts it, then it happens. Then the last thing you might be able to say is, well, maybe, just maybe, these people are particularly ruthless. So it says in chapter 3, he says, Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. The, the crack of the whip, the rumble of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies and all the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful of the deadly charming charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and people with her charms. Verse 5, he says, Behold, I'm against you, declares the Lord. He says, I will lift up your skirts over your face and I will make the nations look at your nakedness and the kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who at your, will look at you and shrink from you and say, wasted is Nineveh, who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? The last line is a pretty like telling like victory statement. Uh, who's going to be upset that you've been wiped out? Who's going to want to comfort you? Who's going to mourn over this city? Uh, What Nahum and what God is saying is, you're so bad, no one is even going to be sad or shed a tear. Uh, The the sort of uh, ruthless nation that that would be the case. So maybe it is special. Maybe they are particularly bad. 
Assyria did dominate the, the known world at the time. The way they did that is they would make treaties with people and then double-cross them and destroy them anyway. Uh, they would use other nations as they came in and conquered them. They would plunder everything. When he talks here poetically about they would fall over bodies, he's talking about the long line of people, of mass graves that they threw people in because they did not care about anyone who was not them. They uh, were well known for instituting slavery in the most vicious of terms. They used military might. They had better technology, if you can like imagine that, in 600 B.C. They had greater technology than anyone else around them. They had incredible skills at, at uh, weakening the people before them with propaganda and with lies, saying things like, well, we'll show mercy on you if you're king you know, shows mercy on us. Just give us some water and we'll be good. And then they would come in and destroy the people there. He talks about the cracking of the whips. He talks about all of the things that they've done to abuse children and women. And they are ruthless. They had no regard for human life. In today's terms, the leaders would be charged with all sorts of war crimes even though war is a crime, you know, like it's all war is bad. Yet these people ruthlessly sought it out time and time again. Except their ruthlessness is very similar to that of Babylon, which came next. And Babylon's ruthlessness is really similar to Greece's which is really similar to the Romans. Uh, the Romans were famous for just taking children they didn't want and just throwing them in the trash. Uh, or having divorce laws where all you had to do was walk out of your home and uh, your wife was left with nothing. Uh, that was just sort of the, the fun parts of their culture, right? Rome was way worse than that. After Rome... Uh, we could get into a long line of spreading things, of Nazi Germany, of the Lord's Resistance Army in Uganda and the South Sudan and Rwanda, where they actually steal children and uh, abuse them to the extent that they become murderers themselves. Or uh, we might think of ancient Egypt or uh, Stalin's Russia, which eliminated so many People, as if they didn't matter, or Mao's China, or the Euro European colonialism, which captured millions of people and took them to places they did not want to go, and they were fine with however many died in the process. The, the European colonialists that took whatever treasures were in uh, the country and just simply removed them and brought them home. I know that that's true because I grew up in a city that was built by that. Or we can think about the United States with the KKK and the Jim Crow laws. And we can think about Catholic priests that abuse children. And we can think of the countless encounters that I know you've had, whether on a national level or whether just your life. This sort of ruthlessness is not special. It grieves me to say that sort of ruthlessness of Nineveh is not special. Uh, we are participants in a humanity 
where this, it feels like, is our default setting. And it doesn't have to be on some massive global level. You don't have to be a member of the KKK or the Nazi party for, it to, for you to know. There have been very powerful people that have abused very weak people. There have been very uh, disastrous attempts to disregard the humanity of another person. And for those people, which I think is us, the truth is, God is jealous and avenging. It's especially good news for anyone who's ever been taken advantage of, who's ever received the blunt force of a bully, whether it was uh, a bully in school, or it was an uncle, or a father, or a stranger, anyone who's ever been abused, it's good news that God is angry and avenging. It's good news for anyone who's tasted evil in this world and desperately needs a God who sees it and is moved. Who sees it and is actually angry about it. I don't think I could uh, imagine or live in a world in which God sees this evil happening. Even sees the evil in your own life and does not grow angry. What God can watch the abuse of children, the genocide of nations, the slavery of full people groups, and not grow angry? Would we prefer a God who's ambivalent to that? Would we prefer prefer a God who watches everything that happens and says, I'm sorry, aren't you glad I gave you ice cream and pizza and just vote in the next election? Do Do you want that? No, it is good, gracious news. When it says here that God does not clear out the guilty. See, Nahum is actually writing this book, uh, not to Nineveh, but to the people of Israel, who had spent generations under the threat and under the cycles of Assyrian tyranny. And he wrote them, uh, to, the, to, to a people who know full well the, the breath of a lion on your neck. And he says in verse 7, just to remind you, he says, the Lord is good. He's a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. But will over, with an overflowing flood, He will make complete end of the adversaries and will pursue His enemies into darkness. That last phrase, he will pursue his enemies into darkness, might be some of the most hopeful words you could ever encounter. That God will pursue evil and the the devil himself and every image you can conjure up, he will pursue that evil to the depths of darkness. And he did. Also, he's pointing forward. But in verse 15, he says, Behold, Upon the mountains the feet of Him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He's utterly cut off. 
This is the hopeful message of a time and a place that he's speaking to these people who are experiencing eternity. He's saying, there will be a time where you will never experience their presence again. Not in a text message or a Facebook post or anything like that. You'll never hear of their wickedness again. He's describing a hopeful, peaceful place where the purpose of the good news of God is to remove us entirely from the even existence of sin and wickedness and evil in the world. And he calls that good news. And he calls it a publishing of peace. I love that phrase because I sometimes get published things. Uh, It's ruining my hands, but I get things published. But what's amazing about those moments is that, is that something that's secret becomes public. Something that only exists for a few people becomes displayed and evident for all to see. And he's saying, I will publish peace. If you look at chapter 2, verse 2, he says this, For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob and the majesty of Israel. For plunders have plundered them and ruined their branches. Here he's describing the restoration that takes place when God's people are oppressed and when he's removed evil. See, even in the passages that we quoted about Jesus, there's hope and there's good news. See, in in all of those passages, which I'll share later and you can look them up, uh, you see God's intent with all of this judgment. His anger. His wrath. He's getting the hell out of earth. He's removing the dross, as Isaiah says, the the unfiltered uh, disease within silver. He's removing it. He's purging the world of wickedness. He's banishing evil. He's comprehensively defeating the devil. And it's good news. And he defeats it through his own death and resurrection. He also defeats evil through the removing of evil from the world in final, complete justice. And the day of the Lord, as the prophets have described often about the judgment of God, is really hard news. It was hard news to the people that Jesus was talking about. He he spoke mostly to religious leaders, telling them, hey, it's going to be better for you to drown with a big stone around your neck than to get what's coming to you because I am moved whenever you make others walk elsewhere apart from me and my life. God is moved by that, and it would be better for you to drown in the ocean than to get what's coming to you from me. God's anger moves him to action. While God in, you know, common culture might be the most famous angry character, his anger is actually purposeful. Uh, David Pallison wrote a really good book called Good and Angry. So if you like good books, I put two out there. Uh, And he defines God's anger this way. He says God's anger is physical, it's emotional, and it's a spiritual response to, that's not right, I don't like that, and I'm going to do something about it. See, God's wrath 
It's purposeful, patient, and comprehensive. While our anger is usually self-centered and like, I can't believe they made me wait that long in the line and, and all these other things, God's is actually purposeful, patient, and comprehensive. And Jesus defeats evil. See, God's fury uh, frees us from all of the uh, fury of evil. As the modern prophet once said, the arc of history is long, but it's curved towards justice. And that curving towards justice goes straight through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. God's anger and jealousy is surprising because it results not with Jesus trying to convince the Father not to destroy people, but with the Father saying, I so love this world, and I, and I so know the wrath that's coming to them because I will deal with evil. But God so loves the world that He actually sends the Son. That Jesus walks on the earth both proclaiming the justice of God, but also the love of God, and He portrays it most viscerally in the death and the resurrection, in His own breaking uh, skin and bleeding body, He gives Himself up. And when Nahum says that God will pursue uh, evil to the depths of darkness... Christ goes into a tomb and there he raises again and evil is squandered forever. Whenever he talks poetically about how these evil Assyrians will be mocked publicly and no one will mourn for their defeat. Jesus makes that true for the devil himself for all evil that we've ever seen. No one will weep for that. We'll all be happy about that. A world without that kind of evil. And just to make it clear that, that Jesus really is the hope that we have. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 13, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, Jesus has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That is that in everything he might be preeminent. And then verse 19, he says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether they're things on earth or things in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus publishes peace with us. It's not a secret You don't have to have fancy degrees to get it. You don't have to live a life where no evil touches you or where you've done no evil. That's the power of the cross, that it makes reconciliation possible for anyone. Whether you've screamed at your children, whether you've done abuse, no matter how deep your sin goes, the cross goes further the victory of the cross goes much further. 
So uh, I'm sure I'm done with time. What this means for us, uh, I'm sure it means lots of things for you right now. One thing it might mean for you is you might need to like study this some more because this is a super brief depiction of how God is vengeful and wrathful. Um, you might want to read Jonathan Edwards' sermon, again, not as a punk high school kid, but like as a sober-minded adult. Um, even you, you, the kids back there, you could read it first time. Uh, but here are a few other things besides that. One is that we should actually buckle under uh, this realization. That we really are sinners in the hands of an angry God. And that apart from the peace that Jesus publishes with his own blood, we are just as deserving. We might want to refer to the few times we've recycled correctly or uh, the great you know, mission trips we've done, even to Puerto Rico. Uh, yet, we've still committed evil in this world. And that reality of everything I've described should cause us to quiver, but also to gleefully accept that God has given us uh, unbelievable grace and salvation. That he's redeemed, that he's restored, and that he's justified us when we have no ability or credit to say that we deserve so. Uh, The second thing is that as the oppressed and as the abused... It's what's really messed up about sin in our world. We're both the abuser and the abused. And I'm pretty confident that's true for everyone. Big or small, there's really not that much of a sliding scale when God's talking about healing and salvation. But for us, as the abused and as the oppressed, we can actually lay down our bitterness and our anger knowing that there's not a single evil that goes unseen. As powerful as Assyria was, uh, it was no problem for God at all to take them out. No matter how uh, unrepentant and evil and wicked, whoever it is that's ruined your life, there's not a single one of those people that goes unseen and unjustified by God. that day, in the end, when all is put right and we live in a presence, as uh, Nahum describes, where no evil or wickedness will ever pass through our land ever again, we will shout for the victory that Jesus has won over all the people that commit genocide and have destroyed even our own hearts and lives. We will know that He's restored all things and rescued us from the very presence of evil. And then the last thing that this means for us is that we should ask the Holy Spirit to actually change our posture and our own anger. Now this point's pretty huge, and I'm not going to talk about it for very long. But that we would see what's happening in the lives of others and the lives of people in this city and whatever system it is and we would be moved like God has moved. See, see, God doesn't try to find a distraction with whatever the latest restaurant or movie or fad is. God is moved, not distracted, 
from evil and injustice. He's moved to give himself completely. And so I would say one of the things we have to do is allow the Spirit to change our own anger. Uh, Often our anger is, that's not right, I don't like it, it's messing up my life. That's normally how we're angry. I would say that's even true uh, for all the people that were angered. It's been a year since the election. We were angry because it didn't like us how we felt about our own country. Uh, maybe you weren't angry, which is kudos to you. Um, but the movement of that anger is for like ourselves. right? What God is talking about in terms of holy anger is a God and as a people of God we would be moved to action. That we would be moved to compassion and mercy and doing justice. That the gospel could actually transform our own petty anger and our petty jealousy to actually be uh, put out in the world to sacrifice everything we have to actually seek the restoration for other people on behalf of people who cannot see past the anger that is, uh, or the wrath that's being imposed on them by others. And so I, I really genuinely do pray that we would be uh, burdened to do things like sell our stuff and give our stuff away so that we can help someone have a car. Or that we could uh, be moved to say, actually, there's this whole group of people that live in apartments over here in our city that don't get to participate in our cultural like life of the city. And I pray that we'd actually be moved to do something where we go and we seek to welcome in people to our tables. That even uh, Thanksgiving, as awkward as we might imagine it to be, uh, we would actually welcome people to our Thanksgiving table. Where we can look at a friend or a brother from a different part of town or a different industry and we might get to call them friend and brother at a table. Um, I think that is... Uh, winning, so to speak, and God doing justice. Uh, we're about to do communion, and that's why I think that that's winning, doing justice, is because it's at a table with people that should not be friends with the Son of God, but they're at a table with the Son of God, and he takes the bread and the wine, and he says, I'm giving all of this to you. The, the most elaborate display of justice the world has ever known and will ever know is what Jesus meant when he took the bread and the wine and what he did just hours later. Uh, So let's pray and let's celebrate communion knowing that God is uh, angry and vengeful, yet he took it upon himself for us. Jesus, we thank you for every page of the scriptures. Uh, We thank you that uh, we don't have to be nervous. Uh, You do not have crazy skeletons in your closet. Uh, that you uh, love justice. You love justice because it breaks uh, the chains that we experience on earth, Uh, that you set us free, Uh, that you heal our hearts. And I pray for us, as some of us wrestle with how we're the oppressor and others that we're the oppressed, that you would uh, save our souls that you would heal our hearts. We need so much healing that only you provide. Uh, Help us to walk in peace uh, and without bitterness, without uh, distraction, but that we would be able to own uh, parts of our story that 
that includes you as the healer and the one that was present, even angry with the parts of our story that are so wrong. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. It's in your name that we hope. Amen.